G'day, you're listening to For The Win, the podcast that discusses the campaigns, people and strategies that have changed Australia forever. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. Welcome to the inaugural episode of For The Win. I'm delighted that the first episode is covering the Uluru Statement from the Heart, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's struggle for constitutional recognition the way they want it. We live side by side, but not yet united. That was Yolnu elder Gurwe Yunupingu speaking at last year's Gama Festival, where PM Turnbull essentially dismissed the demands of the Uluru Statement. After decades of paternalistic and outright genocidal policies from the Australian government, this is a truly unrivaled call to change the constitution and change the country. The problem with all of that was that it never asked us what we wanted. I'm joined by the man who's travelling the country, drumming up support for the Uluru Statement, and he's got a lot to say about how a community as diverse as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people reach an agreement at all, and the truly monumental significance of the statement. He'll tell us how he's going to help push for a referendum and win it. Invite him to your workplace, to your school, to your footy club. This is Thomas Mayer, Secretary of the MUANT and Ambassador for the Uluru Statement. So we're talking about his work as an ambassador for the Uluru Statement. Uh, he's been all over the country travelling since the statement was released and um, just really keen to hear his story and his take on things. So, g'day Thomas, thanks g'day. for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, Thomas, you grew up in Darwin? Yeah, I grew up here. Um, I've always lived here. haven't lived anywhere else yet. Mm-hmm. And you're a Torres Strait Islander man? Yeah, proud Torres Strait Islander. Fabulous. And do you feel kind of connected to that area and that culture? And Yeah, well, I've stayed connected because we um, have pretty much everything we need. It's Torres Strait Islanders in Darwin. We've got lots of turtles and lots of dugongs on the reef and mm-hmm. seafood. So, um, And I used to island dance, you know, in the Torres Strait mm-hmm. community here when I was younger. So I've always felt connected, even though I'm a long way from the Torres Strait and visited there as much as I can to see family. Yeah, fabulous. And this Torres Strait Islander culture, is it, is it kind of similar to Aboriginal culture, do you think, or is it distinct? Well, I think it's similar in some ways and distinct in others, yeah. It's, it's unique in itself, yeah. And are your kids also kind of involved in it as well? Uh, not as much as I was, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. They haven't done island dancing, but they certainly love the tucker and have <laughs> learned how to cook it, the older ones, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fabulous. And how did you get involved in unions? Well, I, was, uh, I became a wharfie when I was 17 year old. Um, well, I, at first I did a maritime traineeship and the, uh, the old fellows asked if I would join the union and uh, I said yes. And so I've been a member since I was 17. And I was here through the 1998 Patrick's dispute, which was uh, you know, quite, a, quite an experience and opened my eyes up uh, more than anything else, I suppose. the the importance of unity, um, the the very different interests that uh, that the capital, you know, the, the companies have versus the workers, and it just made so much sense to me to get involved. And after 1998, the the elders, the older um, wolfies that were staunch and understood how to organise and maintain um, control for the workers. Most of them retired. In fact, all of the, the, the really solid unionists retired. And I was left as a 21-year-old delegate um, working with men 
twice my age that had never been in a union before, a lot of them, because they were new, you know, coming in replacing the guys that left, trying to teach them how to stick together and not, um, you know, not let the boss do whatever he wanted. So it was a very difficult time and um, galvanised my sense of unionism and the importance. And um, what, have, what happened with that dispute? Did you guys end up with a good resolution? Yeah, well, we ended up with a good resolution. We, we basically won because we got back into the gate, um, you know, similar to what happened in Darwin. It wasn't without its difficulties and challenges um, coming back into the gate because we had to revitalise and reunionise. Um, some some uh, conditions were lost <coughs> in that time. Uh, but it also was a lesson for me as in we won partly because of the great support that we had in the community. Um, it was an injustice that was being done to our, our union, um, us as workers. Um, but we'd also had a long history of supporting social justice struggles and community issues. And therefore, when our backs were against the wall, that community came out in support. And that taught me a lesson in that as well. Yeah, I mean, in Sydney, where I'm from, I feel like the NUA turn up to every... <laughs> Every time there's a, a march or a rally or <clears throat> an event, the MUA are there. I mean, I guess that's a pretty deliberate tactic of showing solidarity. Yeah, and it's also because we recognise we're from those communities mm -hmm. and because we recognise that uh, you can't leave the weak to be attacked because who's next, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do. It's also, you know, smart strategically, but, uh, you know... I guess our, from our seafaring background, uh, our, our comrades travelled the world back in the day, you know, and saw the way that people were treated in, in different countries under different regimes. And um, when you have wars, you know, like the World War, World War II, there was uh, the most proportionate loss of, uh, of personnel was merchant seafarers. And so when you're sitting ducks on vessels without any um, real ability to defend themselves, the last thing you want is war to be raging around the place too. Yeah, mm. yeah fabulous. And so, what do you think about um, unionism at the moment? Are you excited about where unions are headed? I feel like over the past, you know, even decades, there's been kind of declining memberships. It seems like there's a bit of a revitalisation happening at the moment, or maybe just more people are sick of, <laughs> sick of you know, um, declining working conditions and stuff. Well, the behaviour of the awful current government um, helps, but I think we've got great leadership um, with Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill. You know, this is really exciting. Um, I think that uh, I do feel uh, what you were talking about, which is a, a resurgence of the understanding of unionism, the value of it. We've come through a royal commission with more than $80 million spent on trying to demonise us and we've come out of that with a clean slate, really, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you can't ask for a cleaner bill of health. And, um, you know, with that leadership and, and with that behind us, I reckon we can grow now. Yeah, and what do you, what do you think about Wolfies in particular? Uh, you know, this technology advancing um, with no real policy to manage that and ensure that people still have meaningful... Um, well-paid jobs, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a real that's a real shortcoming in uh, in the planning of uh, this nation and the progress of uh, humankind, I suppose. Um, and that's scary, you know. What are our kids going to do? Um, yeah. You know, all they're doing is 
is attacking uh, unions, so the ability to organise around those other jobs and everything. It's, it's a really difficult time that we have coming and I think we should be organising now to address this, um, this technological advances. Yeah, absolutely. So just getting stuck into the Uluru Statement, um, I was thinking about sort of trying to come up with some notes about context and then I realised I probably have 60,000 years worth of notes. Um, but I wanted to start maybe from when the previous a- attempt to sort of change the constitution to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people in the constitution kind of um, was folded in, uh, the recognised campaign. And so then there was a sort of moment, I guess, where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were asked to come up with a different suggestion. Is that fair to say where... Yeah, it's important to get this right because there's misinformation out there about it, really. Um, because the the campaign for constitutional recognition has been... Well, it's been going on for a long time, the discussion about it. And, you know, people like John Howard have indicated, well, we should have a preamble in the Constitution to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You had the Recognise campaign that was about building awareness of the need for constitutional recognition. The problem with all of that was that it never asked us what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And it assumed that symbolic recognition would be enough. But what the pushback did was that it achieved um, the Referendum Council being set up, completely separate from Recognise and nothing to do with Recognise, that went out and ran a very well-informed process of 13 dialogues around the country and actually asked us for the first time what we wanted. And that could have been rejecting constitutional recognition altogether. And in fact, in every dialogue, they rejected constitutional recognition that was symbolic. Symbolic recognition was not something that we wanted because it does not change the issues that we have. It it does not give us any power to affect those decisions made about us. But what was said in all of those dialogues was that we need to have a voice. And the constitutional enshrinement of that voice will protect it. The constitution is the rule book of the nation. And if you put it in the constitution, it doesn't undermine our sovereignty, but what it does is it protects it from the likes of John Howard, who removed ATSIC extremely easily with the support of the Latham Labor government. We cannot allow that to happen again. If we build it, it's got to last. Yeah, absolutely. And so when the Uluru Statement came out, that was after this pretty intense process of um, of negotiation and consultation with a lot of people. And anyone who's tried to decide with more than five people like what to eat will know that you can't get a group of people to decide on anything. Um, So this was a pretty significant agreement. Oh, um, it's absolutely, yeah. It's historic and it's what constitutional experts call a constitutional moment. But look, the most important thing is that it came out of 13 dialogues with 100 people at each of the dialogues. Sure, not everybody was invited. You can never do that if you're going to have a really carefully informed three-day for each of those dialogues process. But what it did do was it had a 60% formula that um, 60%, the formula was 60% traditional owners from the region, mm-hmm. 20% Indigenous people from Indigenous organisations in the region, and 20% active Indigenous people in the region. Um, there was careful um, management to ensure that there was 
a range of, you know, from both extreme ends of views on constitutional reform, um, that there were stolen generations there, that there was gender balance. Now, this culminated in each of those dialogues, they elected delegates to go to the culmination of those dialogues in Uluru to look at the synthesis of all those meetings um, and then endorse something going forward, which is where the Uluru Statement came from. And that's really important to remember that we will never have in our lifetimes, I really believe that we won't have another process like this, another opportunity like this. We will be waiting forever and we're defending the status quo if we think that everybody must be invited to a meeting before we agree with something and move ahead. Um, I saw people in these dialogues that were I'm for nothing that would, would stand up in the you know in the very beginning and say, I'm for nothing but treaty and I don't agree with any of this or I'm just sovereignty and everything else can, you know, can get stuffed. But I saw after three days of informative discussion lessons on what the Constitution is, you know, what it means to do certain things to it, with experts there to answer questions straight away, um, that we all seem to land in the same place. And that's what the synthesis showed, and that's why Uluru calls for three, the three things that came out on top, and that was voice, treaty and truth. Yeah, um, that's a pretty incredible process. Oh, it's an incredible process, and, um, you know, you've got to take your hat off to the people that organise it, you know, the Indigenous members of the Referendum Council were the, were the drivers of this. They designed and organised and um, and then those local people as well. So every dialogue had two um, local co-chairs who chose five local facilitators and then they did the invites, you know, and all that. Now, I'd never say that the process was perfect. You're never going to get a pro perfect consultation. But what we have here is a true national consensus that we can move forward on and try and achieve this. Absolutely. Is there any one person that you think of that you just really admire looking at their work towards this? Oh, only Pat Anderson, you know. Um, her, her strength, you know, and um, having been, you know, in the struggle for so long, her patience and, uh, well, and sometimes not patience, you know. She didn't miss the government when they dismissed this, and, and rightfully... I believe, called them mission managers. You know, here we go again. The mission managers are telling us that they know better. Um, Arnie Pat is a, a, a great leader. I did have a little quote here from Malcolm Turnbull, I think, which he actually said at Garum Festival last year, which was, I respect deeply the work of the Referendum Council and I respect it by considering their report very carefully. And it kind of seems like that has been their... The response from the government, a kind of oh, It's dismissal. nothing but lip service. And yesterday he was in Tennant Creek um, saying that, you know, we should, again, repeating that we should do things with and not, you know, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when he's dismissed, you know, our one national consensus that calls for a very reasonable step forward. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he's so wrong and that's one of the reasons why the Uluru Statement is so... Um, important I guess it, it doesn't call for those those many ideas that people have for end results but it actually says look we need to be able to come together and the government among others have purposely divided us for so long you have an obligation to resource that mm -hmm. and the call for a voice is about a first nations representative voice we're tired of the prime minister selecting 
you know, our representatives. We're tired of the media tapping people on the shoulder and saying, you can be the spokesperson for Indigenous people today. Um, and the voice that we call for is First Nation representative, and the government has an obligation to do that so that we can sit at the table um, as equals. It seems like there's been a bit of a deliberate conflation as well around the power of that voice to parliament, like, oh, it'd be a third chamber, so it couldn't possibly happen. So it's kind of different ways of just dismissing yeah, it. Yeah, look, uh, you can't describe that in any other way, given the information that uh, Turnbull and Barnaby had at hand. You can't describe it in any other way than that it's a lie. Yeah. Um, it was not a third chamber to parliament that we're calling for. That was explained in the Referendum Council report. It's been explained by our people that were part of the process. Um, I mean, the, the strength of this is that we're able to come together, and I understand that as a unionist, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why Turnbull is afraid of it. He doesn't want grassroots people getting together with genuine, legitimate um, and accountable representation. Absolutely. I just wanted to read a, a little piece from the Uluru Statement because... I think not only is it historic, um, it's also kind of beautiful, I think. So it says, with substantive consultational change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. So do you think, anyway, leading question, do you think this will be better for white Australia as well, as well if we got this voice to parliament? Oh, uh, look, I mean, absolutely. You, I mean, this is a visionary statement and uh, the words are... Um, eloquently articulating that vision, you know, uh, towards further on in the uh, statement it talks about, uh, you know, how um, our culture can be a gift to this nation. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just been reading Dark Emu and Bruce Pascoe's book and how, um, you know, I suppose taking a step back, how the settlers and the colonisers purposely uh, downplayed the sophistication of our people and uh, what they had achieved and, um, you know, that, that history that goes um, beyond any other culture in this world, you know, the oldest culture in the world, um, how we managed to live, uh, you know, far more peacefully than, you know, the European or, you know, any other peoples in the world for so long. Um, it, it really is something to celebrate and we can only celebrate it when we truly um, reconcile um, what has been perpetrated against us and what continues to be done, which is um, which is keeping the, the foot on the throat of our, our people, um, only when we address those issues and we implement the Uluru Statement can we really celebrate it. But that's the thing. That's what Australia will will gain out of this. All of us, you know, um, the the culture that um, we can celebrate. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's next? We have this visionary statement. We have the ALP has said, yep, let's do it. The Greens have said, yep, let's do it. The government has said, um, kind of put it in a drawer. So what are people like you? You're sort of seconded at the moment to go around and talk to people all over the country about the statement. Um, what's next? How are we going to get this over the line? Well, we haven't taken no for an answer. <laughs> and so in October last year, I didn't... You know, we didn't hang up the Uluru Statement and, you know, hand it to Parliament to gather dust like all of our other aspirational statements in the past. Um, what we've done is we've kept travelling, we've kept talking to people and it's about a people's movement. We need to get the critical mass um, of Australian people to say, we think 
that you should take us to referendum and that there should be a question asked on whether or not we support a voice to Parliament for First Nations. And once that is done, then we can all vote yes and happy days. Away we go and we've completed the nation and we can really you know, start to, to celebrate this culture that I talked about. And so you're in a lucky position in that the MUA are seconding you. Are there other paid organisers working on this? Um, we're just starting to establish some structure like that. So um, it's, it takes a while when you've got a loose coalition of supporters. There's um, plenty to deal with and plenty to uh, agree upon. But uh, fortunately, we haven't stopped building this movement. I think we've gained great momentum. Um, there's been, the last time I checked, which was two weeks ago, I think there were more than 300 submissions in the Joint Select Committee and a great, great majority of those are supportive um, saying to the Joint Select Committee and the Government, you know, we, we support the Uluru Statement. So we're on a roll, mm -hmm. but uh, for the listeners, we need you to support um, more, you know, and write, into the, do, yeah, yeah. write to your local members, um, you know, write to the Joint Select Committee, even if the submission dates have closed, you know, the final report isn't until November. So write into them and let them know that you support the Uluru Statement and that you'd campaign for a, for a yes vote at um, a referendum that you know, seeks to establish a First Nations voice, um, you know, initiative, take initiative, you know, mm. the, uh, the uh, same-sex marriage campaign, you know, started in small places, councils came on board one at a time, you know, and, and we reached a point where we had such a role on that the government had to do something about it. And if we're going to wait for, you know, for, for another opportunity, it's not going to happen in our lifetimes and we leave our children with the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just read another, another chunk from the statement. Um, in 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave, base, be, we leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So the statement is written to the Australian people. It's almost like we knew that Malcolm Turnbull wasn't going <laughs> to... Agree the first time, right? <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing good is ever easy, is it? No, no, nothing worthwhile ever comes without struggle. So, you know, I just really hope the listeners, uh, you know, even if it's simple stuff like social media, hashtagging Uluru Statement, that, that sort of stuff, it, it all helps. And people can read the statement and read more of the history on One Voice Uluru. And um, should we be following you on Twitter? Where else can we find some more information? Yeah, the, uh, the Twitter is at Voice Macarada. Um, I think mine is at Tom Mayer 11 but that's the main one, at Voice Macarada. Yeah, get on there and um, listen to what we've got to say. We had actions in Wentworth, and we're going to do that again. I think that was a very effective and successful action. Um, the people in Wentworth, you know, despite it being the wealthiest, uh, you know, electorate per capita, I think, was it was a great turnout and people went out and I mean even just passerbys stopped and you know signed the pledges I mean we've got to I think we've got to target those areas especially so if you live in one of these electorates of a, a person that you know doesn't support the Uluru statement then I think you should go and knock on their door yeah yeah so you had held two events in uh, Malcolm Turnbull's electorate in Wentworth one in King's Cross one in uh, Centennial Park yeah and this was just supportive members of the community or was it Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or just 
It was just a mixture. Everybody. It was everybody, yeah. And it was a great turnout. We had a great day. We had three of the Gurindji people that we brought over. Vincent, um, Vincent Lingari's daughter, Rosie Smiler was there with us. Um, Rob Roy and Jeremy Frith. Um, the most inspirational moment in recent times that I can remember is after that action. And Rosie went all the way back to Kalkaringi. You know, it's a, I think it's around a 10-hour drive from Darwin let alone the long flight to Sydney. Mm. Uh, and she called me and she said, you know, Thomas, I, I'm just so proud, you know, and you could just hear, you could hear it in her voice that she had followed in the footsteps of her grandfather and went and tried to rally support for something so important. And, uh, you know, that brought tears to my eyes. It was such a special moment with Rosie. And uh, I said to her that we'll do it again and we will. Fabulous. I'll be there. I hope our listeners will be there as well. Yeah, good. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to For the Win. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. I'll be putting up all the information you need to know to get involved in the episode notes and how to follow Thomas, how to follow me online and um, any episode suggestions, you can tweet them at me. So thanks for listening, everybody.